0: Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of Outlaw Country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. pushkin just a quick note here you can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist which you can find a link to in the show notes for licensing reasons each time a song is referenced in this episode you'll hear this sound effect all right enjoy the episode wilco's jeff tweedy has written hundreds of songs over his 30-year career For some artists, that would be an impossible feat. But Tweedy's cracked his own songwriting code, and he's ready to share it. With Tweedy's work ethic, it's no surprise that eight months into the pandemic, he has a new solo album to share. This song, Guess Again, is from his new project, Love is the King. More surprising, though, is that he's found the time to document the creative process behind his prodigious output. In a book titled How to Write One Song, Tweedy lays out his own workmanlike approach to songwriting. The book reveals how he comes up with melodies, lyrics, and chords, and even more importantly, how he finds the inspiration and the time to write. Jeff Tweedy spoke to Malcolm Gladwell about his new book, explaining why he believes songwriting isn't a mystical endeavor, but something that can be honed with practice. And at the end of the episode, he plays us through the writing of one of his new songs, Step by Step. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Malcolm Gladwell with Jeff Tweedy.
1: Can I start with this tantalizing little f- anecdote you tell in your book that when your dad got mad, he would go into the basement and write poems? <laughs> and all I could think of is this is the Jeff Tweedy origin story. <laughs> Pretty much.
2: <laughs> I think so, yeah.
1: Was your father musical?
2: My father was a frustrated entertainer. he He got my mom pregnant in high school, and he they dropped out and he got a job on the railroad. And I think his whole life, I think that he wished that he had had an opportunity to be on stage somehow. Mm. Uh, but he was not particularly musical. Uh, but he was entertaining, that's for sure. Uh, but he he aspired to be musical. He always he liked to sing. He he drank a lot, and he got up at every wedding and, and embarrassed us terribly, humiliated us in lots of cases. Yeah. <laughs> but but, um,
1: but were his poems were they any good?
2: Yeah, I, no, my dad was brilliant. Um, you know, they weren't. I don't think that they were good in like a Robert Frost. Way yeah. or, or, but they might have been good in a Jimmy Stewart kind of <laughs> way or Ogden Nash, maybe at the high end of his uh, aspirations. But yeah, you know, um, he wouldn't have had any of those references other than Jimmy Stewart. So, but he did, you know, he made un requited forays into indulging his musical side many times. Like he bought a, an organ from the mall that the salesman claimed would teach him how to play. And he would just sit there and watch the lights flash as it would play itself and drink a beer. <laughs> it was uh, uh, I have a lot of memories of that.
1: <laughs> but the, the po- he wrote the poems when you said when he was angry— uh, that
2: was my memory of them, yeah, yeah. And um, I sadly, you know, you know, a couple of summers ago, when he passed away, we, you know we emptied out the house, the house that I the only house I'd ever lived in, when you know, like my parents bought one and my mom was pregnant with me. And I found a lot of his homework from when he taught himself, are basically uh learned computing early on uh math homework and stuff like that, but I didn't find any of the notebooks that had any of the poems so mm-hmm. i'm I, I i suspect that he just got it off his chest and then threw them away you know
1: yeah <laughs> i just love, I just love these kinds of generational parallels mhm mm-hmm. it's almost like you know if if we if you were on the couch, I would say. You're like Tweety 2.0. You're like the do-over, the mm-hmm. frustrated musician who's who's writing these essentially lyrics of some sort, mm-hmm. sort, and then you're you you you've come along and you've turned it into an art. <laughs> well, yeah,
2: I mean, uh, there's there are tons of parallels that I I mean. We, I mean, it's disturbing as you get older how much you start to look like your parents and look like exactly like my dad. And, you know, I think he suffered from a lot of the same mood disorders that I've dealt with in my life. But he clumsily, but somehow, you know, as far as employment goes and far as far as like not having worsening consequences, which would be typical of alcoholism. He managed to medicate himself clumsily for his entire life, you know, mm. for anxiety. I'm sure he had anxiety and depression, and 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 yet, and he he did instinctively seem to have turned to some of the same things that have provided some solace for me that weren't unhealthy, you know, like um, yeah. getting things off his chest. And you know, I, I was indulged a lot, uh, perhaps because I was a do-over. <laughs>
1: When did you write your first song? Do you remember?
2: The first song I remember writing, and I'm pretty sure that there were songs before this, but the first song I remember writing was a song called Your Little World. And Mm -hmm. it was about a girl and her not having enough room in her world for me. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, how, old, weird, how old are you when you ready? Uh Maybe 13, 14.
1: You don't remember it, do you?
2: Your little world's much too small. Oh, I ain't got no room at all. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, I remember it. I could play it. Actually, one of the weird things is, is that uh, uh, this local musician who went by the name Joe Camel, uh, a band Joe Camel and the Caucasians, they actually recorded that song. And... And made a single out of it. Oh, really? It, is, it exists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it because I was this. I was this kid that hung out with all like at the record stores and hung out at the you know with around other musicians uh, when I could get near them. And I would always I write songs, and this guy in this band, Joe Camel, said, "Hey, let me hear one of your songs." And I went over to his house and I played him this song. He said, "Oh, that's great. I'm going to record it. We're going to go to record this song." And he did. <laughs> that's fantastic.
1: What, when do you th- think you wrote your first good song?
2: Well, I I honestly don't think that that one was terrible. I think it's you know, it's it's not great, but it was it was good enough for somebody else to Mm. want you know see some potential in it. Um, The first song I liked that I wrote was probably Screen Door on the first um, Uncle Tupelo record. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the first one where I felt like I had said something that felt true to me and that I didn't necessarily have anybody else's song to convey that idea. I always look at it like I'm trying to make songs, and so, new song for me to sing that someone hasn't already written. So that one was the first one that felt like that.
1: How old are you when you write that song?
2: 16,
1: maybe. Oh, I see. 16, 17. Yeah. So pretty, it's funny, I just, I, I have heard musicians of various kinds answer that question over the years and there's a a the whole set of them who like you know 10 years pass between the first song they write and the first one they like yeah <laughs> but but you 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 have a much less um uh ambivalent relationship to your early songwriting one of the
2: things i feel like i've had some shame about in my life is how shamelessly I love stuff that I make mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think over time I've really made peace with it because I think that that's like kind of beautiful and it's kind of one of the things that's allowed me to grow I don't I don't tend to keep liking things that I've made I tend to get pretty dissatisfied with them over time but when I, initially uh, even when I figure out how to play something on the guitar that someone else has done, I feel like I invented it. I have this like really, you know, sort of delusional uh, relationship with the joy that I take from making something, and I think that 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 really comes naturally. So a lot of times, my favorite song is always the one I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Is almost invariably I was like, wow, this is a this is really great and. <laughs> And it dissipates over time, but but I've I've always felt like that.
1: Does that make you a bad judge of your own songwriting?
2: I think it does, and that's that's part of the reason that I've had to learn a lot of different ways to get— out of the uh, get my ego out of the way like Mm -hmm. allow things to gestate for a lot longer or put them away and forget them forget about them so that I can come back to them with a little bit more objectivity but in general I think it's just kind of the spirit of it is what comes across a lot of times and Mm -hmm. and that 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 in, in a lot of cases is enough because you know not every song has to be the greatest song that's ever been written but it sure helps if you feel like it is at the moment, (laughs) in the moment, you know?
1: You describe in this this lovely book you've just done, How to Write One Song, (laughs) you describe a series of exercises, Mm -hmm. songwriting exercises, and also describe a kind of what a songwriting day should look like. (laughs) And I was curious before we go into that, how long did you, I mean, if that's the pattern of songwriting you practice now, how long have you been doing it that way did you always have this kind of very structured way about writing music?
2: No, I think that I've, as I've gotten older, I think one of the things I've really had to learn how to do is provide myself structure. Because I am I I work in a profession that doesn't have a lot of structure outside of touring, which is extremely structured and routine, you mm-hmm. know. But being home has always been a little bit uh, dangerous for me in terms of my mental health, though the routine has been something I've had to learn and and has helped me quite a bit. That being said, I don't remember a time where I haven't felt like a kind of a nagging sense all day uh, that I should be making something, Mm -hmm. or that I should be learning something, or I should be reading something, or I should be listening to something. And that tends to provide a lot of momentum to my days, this ugly feeling that I'm avoiding almost all the time is that I don't want to get to the end of the day and feel like I didn't learn anything or didn't, didn't make something or just didn't participate in my life in the ways that I've found to be the most enjoyable and, and helpful to me.
1: Mm-hmm. You describe this ideal songwriting day in the book. When was the last ideal songwriting day you had, and what did it look like?
2: It's been a while. I think the the ideal day, the last one I might have had, would have been during the process of making our the album I just released, Love is the King, where, you know, around 8 o'clock at night or something, I would have started working on a song that I was thinking about recording the next day. Uh, I would have, you know, worked on it, and Played around with it, maybe made a little demo of it on my phone until like maybe midnight. Gone to sleep, woke up. Probably would have finished the lyrics early in the morning because uh, that's they tend to kind of untangle themselves in my sleep uh, a lot of times. And I like to I like to write even before I get out of bed, you know, where I'm. I feel like I'm still sort of, uh, you know the the judgment side of me is still sleeping, or something, you know. Then I would have gotten up and and come to the studio, maybe worked on that song for a little while in the studio, had lunch, maybe taken a nap. Would have gotten up from the nap, finished the song, maybe invited uh, my younger son over to sing a harmony vocal on it. <laughs> Common. Practice In that moment when I'm asking someone else like Sammy to sing on something would be to really focus on the lyrics and make sure they're where I want them to be. So I would have done some revisions on that. Maybe or until around five or six and have a rough mix to take home and have some dinner and listen to records generally until I get excited about trying to make something to beat something I just heard. <laughs> some sort of mm-hmm. like trying to activate some competitive side of my, my brain and then start the whole process over uh, with uh, maybe seeing if I could, you know, come up with another song for the next day.
1: So in your ideal world, is it a song from start to s- to finish in that one day or is it, is it that you have little bits and pieces already there that you're going back and finding and playing with?
2: I can do a song start to finish in one day, but but typically there are uh, little uh, pieces of raw material that have been accumulated. Yeah, I think one of the things I might do at eight o'clock, say the beginning of the day I just described, would be to go through my phone and find a musical idea that I'm excited by that I don't know, it just catches me enough unaware to start dreaming about it and start, Mm -hmm. like, fantasizing about where it could go or what it could sound like. Do you have your phone with you right now? Can
1: you play us a musical idea off the phone? Sure.
2: Let's see. Well, this one sounds a little bit, maybe a little bit more finished than normal. The tunnel at the end of the light. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: <laughs> so, that is that has that little bit been turned into a song yet, or is it just n- out no. there waiting? It's waiting,
2: it's waiting. I mean, there's and then there's stuff that's maybe I don't even know what this is. Just some chords I thought were pretty. Uh, but yeah, there, there, there are dozens, or not dozens, there's probably literally hundreds of those things in my phone. When they stack up a little bit, I usually transfer some to the computer here at the Loft, so they're at least in a couple places. So.
1: Yeah. So I'm fascinated by this process. How long might some, a little bit, linger on your phone or in your archive before you use it? Is there stuff, and if I if we went into the, you said sometimes you download them on at the Loft, How far back would we have stuff there from 10 years ago you've never used?
2: Yeah, I mean, probably. There are... uh, I used to do it on cassettes Mm. and... Basically, I used to just leave a cassette in a dictaphone, old style, like what you would a steno would have used, mm-hmm. or a, someone in an uh, you know, secretary pool. <laughs> and I would just leave it on the coffee table, and, and until it filled up, and then I'd put another cassette in. And there's there are dozens of those cassettes. And like um, on the Suki Ray album that I made under the name Tweety, there's a song on there that I finished after 14 years, I think.
1: What song was it?
2: It's called um, I'll
1: Sing It. Uh-huh. Was there a little snippet of it that was the original snippet?
2: It's actually in the track. I actually just played oh, really? over the cassette uh, version. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's... And then and then, I think that ended up on the, the Summer Teeth box set that we just put out, because it was written around the same time as Summer Teeth.
1: Yeah. When you go back and find a little snippet like that, do you remember when you created the snippet, or is that gone?
2: It depends. A lot of times, I don't remember at all. I have no recollection at all of. Of uh, a lot of times, I don't even remember the tuning, and I have to like sit and figure out because like, I use a lot of different tunings, and um, I really hate it when I don't bother to tune the guitar to a standard pitch because then it makes it even harder to figure out what tuning I'm in and stuff like that. So a lot of times, it's 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 completely gone wherever wherever it happened which is kind of i love it when that happens even though it can be frustrating trying to to relearn it but then there are times where i absolutely have a distinct memory of where i was and and what was happening and a lot of times that's because there are other ambient elements that made it Mm -hmm. made their way onto the recording like say backstage and somebody in Wilco walks through and says something and I can, I can viscerally feel that that room and I'll know even what city it was in, in a lot of cases. Sometimes when I'm doing it in hotel rooms in Europe and you have the windows open, uh, whenever we're fortunate enough to find a hotel that has windows that open, uh, you hear like people leading on the, at the Cafes or something like that, that's those are always really kind of special recordings that a lot of times mean a lot to me, even without them being finished.
1: yeah, we did a um an interview with Nora Jones uh, a while back now, and she was talking about how she did her song wintertime with you mm-hmm. and that and she was talking about this this very process that she had some scraps of little bits and pieces, and you had bits and pieces. And mm-hmm. you kind of put it together to create a really beautiful song can you Can you kind of walk us through that that little case study of this this time with a twist with another person involved mm-hmm. but doing seems like both of you were doing doing the work of creativity in the same way. Is that true?
2: Yeah, I think that well, first of all, Nora Jones doesn't need me to help her write a song for sure, but but we admire each other, so there's, a, there's already a kind of a base level of camaraderie or something, mm-hmm. you know. But I haven't found many people that I've worked with to have it, just wildly different approaches to it. Everybody seems to have sort of the core process is sort of similar. You basically start with something that is nothing, you know, that feels, but feels like it could be something. And then you basically surrender this idea that you can't, you can't do that. You can't make something out of nothing. And, <laughs> and you, you do it. And it's really the most important part is just letting go of the idea that it can't happen, I think. Mm. And with someone else, it requires a lot of waiting until you both have. You know, both people have to feel comfortable and supported enough and trusting enough to kind of throw out ideas until, you know, a light bulb goes off in two heads at once. It's a little bit more foolproof in a way because you have that consensus of universality for two people as opposed to like just trying to imagine that everybody will like something you like. We'll be right back with more from Jeff Tweedy after the
1: break.
3: And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
0: Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash Nest. We're back with more of Malcolm's Conversation with Jeff Tweedy.
1: You've done an unusual amount of collaboration with other artists. You write for Mavis Staples. Uh, You did those beautiful Mermaid Avenue um, albums with Billy Bragg that I um, are among my favorites. When you're writing with another person in mind, does it change the way you write a song?
2: Yeah, I, I think it does. I honestly think that that is the thing that I am most comfortable doing. I think it's the, the thing I truly aspire to do more than almost any other thing that I get to do. I always pictured myself being a person that would write songs for other people to sing. In Uncle Tupelo, I wanted my songs to be sung by Jay because he had this magnificent, like rich, authoritative voice, and and I I had this squeaky, you know, voice that I didn't feel like was quite my own. Even at the time, I was struggling to find it. As much as I felt great when I sang, I just loved the idea of of writing the song more than the idea of singing it. And I still think that that's where my most natural abilities lie is in helping somebody with with their song, like working with Nora, or finding something for someone to sing, like Mavis. I don't look at it as like I'm putting words in her mouth. I feel like I'm just kind of helping find something that she feels comfortable singing that makes sense for her to sing Mm
4: -hmm.
2: same thing with the woody guthrie lyrics that was even more along the lines of what i feel i have the strongest sense about as being something that comes naturally to me because those lyrics were sacrosanct you know They're, they're like you know you're not gonna you're not gonna mess with them they're there you don't even need to worry about whether or not they're good enough they're important For people that don't know, there were all these lyrics that Woody Guthrie left behind that the music was never documented or he never really made any music for. There's all these archival lyrics and writing that we took and made songs out of. And with those, I would just sit and read them over and over and over again until the meter would emerge and then next there would be a melody that would emerge. And in a lot of cases with Woody Guthrie lyrics, you read it and all of a sudden a a Carter family song emerges because that's what he was actually writing his lyrics to was um, someone else's song. Mm -hmm. I I did the same thing with a bunch of lyrics for Bob Dylan that never came out because uh, I I wasn't able to be a part of that process for that record that they did a couple years ago uh, where they had a bunch of lyrics that Dylan had written. It's like Elvis Costello was a part of it and some of the Mumford's, Mumford and Sons. But anyway, T- T-Bone had asked me if I could do it and I, I got all these lyrics and then my wife uh, started treatment for cancer so I couldn't go to L.A. for the amount of time that they wanted me to. But, but I, I did the same thing with those lyrics. I wrote, em, I wrote and recorded a whole record in a weekend.
1: <laughs> like, a, <laughs> Do you find it sort of freeing to not have to do it in your own with with your own voice in mind.
2: Yeah, I think that I just struggle with allowing myself to comment on certain things that I don't feel like I have the authoritative weight to weigh in on for for in terms of like Mavis or something like that, or the things that I feel like Mavis has a voice of. Of righteousness, of some you know, of some broader scope and in, in a historical importance and 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 place, you know, uh, there's just a weight to it that um, I feel very privileged to have been able to write for. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of those things are 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 not going to make as much sense coming out of my mouth. It just doesn't feel right for what for a lot of you know social reasons, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. What's the right word to describe your attitude towards your own voice? Are you self-conscious about it? No, I. You made that comment about Tupelo and how you preferred if
2: No, I I feel like I've gotten way better as a singer and I've worked really hard to get better over a lot of time and I actually I I enjoy my voice. Uh, my singing voice quite a bit. I actually do like listening to myself sing now. When I find things that I want to sing, in a lot of cases I feel like I'm the only person that could sing it the way I want to hear it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that I'm oblivious to the fact that my voice isn't technically great in the you know, by the normal criteria of American Idol or The Voice or you know whatever whatever you know. But all my favorite singers are like that. Almost all of my favorite singers have uh, non-traditional voices that have become communicative you know it's like it's mm-hmm. like where they they trade virtuosity or technique or whatever for sincerity or, or or sentiment and conviction and I feel like I found that in my voice over time and I am very very proud of the idea that i I still work at getting better and and I try and sing in tune, you know, but I'm more i'm much more concerned with making the words feel the way I want them to feel.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: My speaking voice on the other hand is 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 awful I cannot I will never listen to the book that I just read or this interview. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sorry, <to hear> <laughs> I'm sorry, I might listen
2: to you do
1: another interview with someone else, but not. Um, but so on this point in in the book, you talk about stealing,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which you're being you're being a little bit mischievous because you don't really mean stealing, mm-hmm. but you're talking about being open to influence, essentially.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So, give me an example of another artist whose work you find lots of stuff to borrow from and be inspired by. And I'm just curious, does it come from everywhere or are there predictable places where you go to find ideas?
2: Well, the thing I'm describing in the book is is just based on this belief that you can't really copyright a, a, a group of chords. What I'm describing in the book is basically me saying, well, oh, I'm going to look for a song that I think has a bunch of cool chords in it, and I'm going to learn how to play it. And then I'm going to take it and make it into something that no one would hear that song in it anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's basically like just when you're a little bit stuck, just realizing that the world is full of these, you know, sort of naturally occurring shapes that you can appropriate. You know, I don't look at them as being particularly ownable by by anybody and especially if i don't you know sing the same type of song or put the same type of melody over it or even have the same rhythm or you know like there are many many ways to describe it but it's such an it's such a liberating thing to do to just go oh i'll just take these chords and 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 start there because i haven't been able to come up with anything all day that being said there are Just tons and tons of artists, new and old, every day of my life that I encounter. And to me, you have to work to not encounter art that inspires you, (laughs) I think. and, And I think that that does overwhelm people. I think sometimes some people do get to a certain point where they want to hide from influence or hide from the feeling that they're being challenged uh, by other artists. But I look at it like most of the time, I get that way too. I can can feel overwhelmed sometimes, but more often than not, I feel really invigorated by the fact that if I go looking, it won't take me long at all Mm -hmm. to find something that shows me where the bar is that I should be aiming for.
1: What's an example of, a song you listened to recently that triggered all kinds of reactions and inspirations in you, you know
2: Kate uh, Kate Lebon writes a lot of music that makes me feel that way. She's just the first person that popped into my mind she she's an artist that has this uh, undeniable Kate lebonness about what she does, you know, like we're mm-hmm. and that's 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 hard to find, you know, like there's she has a very specific angle that she comes at what she does, and and nobody else knows that precise angle, I think. Uh, the song um, Meet the Man, I Wanted to Meet the Man, I think that's the name of it. So I think it's the last song on her most recent record. It has all of these twists and turns that are unpredictable, and I don't know.
1: When you listen to that song, can you turn off the part of your brain that wants to, to kind of learn from it, use it, Employ it in some way and just enjoy it, or do you? Is it is that part of the brain always on?
2: Well, that is how I enjoy it. <laughs> I think that I think that is part of how I enjoy it. I, yeah, I think I enjoy it first and foremost the way I have enjoyed music since I was a little kid before I played any music or wrote any music. I am just attracted to sound and and excited by records and and I don't think that that's any different, but. I don't feel burdened by the knowledge that I have now. And I think it's, it just adds this insight like, oh, wow, I I can kind of tell what reverb is going on there. But that being said, the things that I tend to enjoy the most are the things that I have zero idea how they came to be. Mm -hmm. Those are the things I listen to, you know, like have more repeated listenings tend to be like some hip-hop records and things that are outside of my skill set. And, and you know, and then there then there are times where I crave comfort food, where I just want to hear a simple country song played on an acoustic guitar, and I have a very, very firm grasp on how that comes to be, but it doesn't diminish its importance in my life, you know.
1: Is there an artist, a contemporary of yours, whose career you would have loved to have?
2: No, I I honestly, I've thought about that a lot. I have moments where I have uh, professional jealousy. I think it'd be impossible not to have these moments, especially if you're somewhat competitive like I am. I think it's like, why is everybody writing about this guy now? I was like, you know, like, (laughs) like, I'm not ashamed to admit I have like, you know, it's, it's, it's not the end of the world to admit you have petty feelings, you know, but. But, um, but it, honestly, I don't think so, because when I take a step back, the prevailing emotion is gratitude. I mean, it wouldn't, this is nothing like I would have been ever, ever been able to imagine for myself, mm-hmm. you know, 30 years in from my first time probably playing on a stage or, you know, getting in front of people.
0: We'll be right back with more
2: from Jeff Tweedy.
0: Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash Boar's nest. We're back with the rest of Malcolm's conversation with Jeff Tweedy.
1: You know, it would be really fun if we put together a bunch of the stuff we've been talking about in a song. Like, is there a song that you could... Break down, play and break down for us. Will you talk about all the little pieces that brought it together, how the song was created, the little bits of influence if you remember them? Is there one that's that fresh in your memory that you could do that? (laughs) A little mini masterclass? Uh, Let me think. I have a
2: guitar here. So. Uh, that's the G chord I always play when I pick up a guitar. It's an in, in, in inadvertent. It's
1: your, the <laughs> invariant G. The, the, the Tweety
2: G. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty. it's just like, my, my grounding. Well, there's a song on the new record called Opaline where. Um, I was writing it this summer or this spring when there was so much going on in the world and our relationships with our police departments were being investigated and talked about a lot. So I'm not a person that's ever had that feeling. I've never really been a a fan of police because I've always felt like police had a lot more to do with um, – their mentality had a lot more to do with the people that made fun of me in school and, and were more jockey, and it's just a general atmosphere around police that I've not enjoyed, but I've not had this experience that a lot of minorities have had with police in this country, and I'm aware of that, but I, I was trying to put myself into that that headspace of um, living with that fear So those were the the lyrics that I was playing around with. It's like, I hear the police outside my window. I can hear them talking on the radios. And uh, I hear the police outside
4: my window. I can hear them talking on the radios. I keep my head underneath my pillow. Pray that they're gonna leave me alone.
2: Um, so that's like just one little chunk of the song. That was a melody that I had without any words.
1: Did you write that chunk first?
2: Yeah. I did. And then I I had a piece that was like, oh, you know, I didn't really have any lyrics. So I was, I, um, we had a golden orb weave spider, weaver spider in our garden this spring that, um, I named Opaline for some reason, just because it just seemed like a cool name. I had an ant opal. And so, I just start singing to her <laughs> Oh
4: Oh Believe Make believe That you still love me Oh Oh, oh Believe It's hard to see reality When you
2: got No love at all So that's just writing a country song. (laughs) It's just trying to figure out a way to get to the line, reality's hard to see when you got no love at all. Because one of the things that has been on my mind a lot these last few years or, you know, for a while now, is how do you get to the point where reality doesn't matter? And it obviously is very negotiable for a lot of people in our information climate that, that we can shop for a reality that we trust and believe. And there isn't a shared consensus a lot of times, which is really maddening and strange to witness. We don't even have the same agreed-upon fictions anymore. You know. Like, so it's, it's uh, really troubling. And I, my theory is that must be a lot easier to do when people have been isolated from a lot of their feelings of being cared for or having you know affection and, and warmth in their life.
1: Mm-hmm. So so you have in this song you have that opening image yeah. of the kid in bed mm-hmm. head under the pillow and hearing the cops outside and worrying. And then you have Opaline. Yeah. And then you also have this other the other interesting element is it's very plainly a country song, but we're not in country territory, are we? <laughs> uh,
2: well, I mean, country territory is pretty pretty vast, in my opinion. Yeah. It's, it's it's to me where country music fails is when it tries to adhere to the tropes of country music mm-hmm. and becomes like civil war reenactment or something. It's <laughs> you know it's not. It's not about what's happening, and this is this is a weird song for me to pick, but I'm going to stick with it now because we're we're in it. Mm-hmm. But you know, this is this is like a this is a little bit of a pastiche to where I got all of these elements to make sense to me and feel good to me. There's a story that runs through it that feels apprehendable to me, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I had that, and that's probably what I put in my phone first. Yeah. Aside from the initial chord progression that I might have hummed over, that was like the first d- document of this song. And then um, I was out driving my car on a toll road right after that. And there was a hearse on a toll road outside Chicago. And this literally, literally happened. And it's, I went through a toll next to a to a hearse and as I went through the toll, I looked back and the hearse was stuck at the toll, like it didn't have any money or or whatever. But as I kept driving, I kept looking in the rearview mirror and it was it just kept not being Mm -hmm. let through the toll. And I just felt like I'd been hit over the head with one of the the most striking metaphors I'd ever encountered in the real world <laughs> 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 you know like what is you know what is purgatory I don't know like it's was just, like, just, yeah. just one of the craziest things and so um, I actually wrote this in the car into my phone I've just voice memoed into my phone uh, there's nothing worse than a hearse driving slow
4: Out on the tollway Stopping at the tolls No change No easy pass What a way to go There's nothing worse Than a hearse Driving slow Oh
2: get back into the chorus.
1: Do why yeah. wait, dumb question, but you had the Hearse experience and you have these two yeah. little bits that you've already done. Why do you think the Hearse experience belongs to this song and not any number of other things that you have stashed away for future reference? How do you know it belongs here?
2: Uh, it's just what was in my mind. Mm-hmm. So I don't really think of things as accidents that I need to really investigate and it just it sang well to these this melody before I could even make a decision about where it should go. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like that song was already in my mind. I'd been working on it. Yeah. so um those are the those are the patterns that you walk around with when you have a song in your head and that's one of the reasons i enjoy having a song on my head because then everything that happens to me is you know like everything fits in that melody it makes some it makes some order out of the world i suppose you know
1: so those lyrics that you just sang for me is that exactly as you composed them in the car or would you fiddle with them later
2: no that's exactly as i composed them in the car
1: <laughs> and did you compose them in the car like like off the cuff or did you were you playing with it in your mind before you recorded it I
2: played with it in my mind a little bit yeah. before I decided that I should document it before I get home yeah.
1: <laughs> you know And again I'm sorry that now I'm I'm totally I can't get over this 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 is so much fun Do you pull over or do you keep driving and and you're singing into your phone
2: Well I mean not to get too technical but I I pressed a button on my phone that allowed me to record it <laughs> without having to take my eyes off the road. <laughs> no, no.
1: no, I didn't mean, I wasn't suggesting you were an unsafe driver, but I was suggesting like, does it, I was imagining there was a scenario where you're so caught up in this that you're like, I got to focus and you would like, pull into the, you know, the IHOP parking lot. Mm-hmm. And, but no, no, you're just, you're just driving merrily down the road, singing this into your phone. Yeah. I love also that you, like, 99% of humanity Sees the hers. Either doesn't see the hers, or sees the hers and doesn't immediately understand the <laughs> the, per, the perfection of that metaphor. Well, I, I, I feel like you're attuned. You you are attuned to these things. Thank
2: you. I think we all should be. I mean, we're like we're walking around, and there's no there's no failed experiment if you're paying attention to the world. I think we get tired. I think we get overwhelmed. Like I was saying before with like inspiration or influence and things like that can, Mm. you know, we're not always receptive and we're not always, we don't always have the energy or uh, we, a lot of us have a lot of concerns all the time about a lot of other things that would require more mental energy than we have. And that tends to crowd out a lot of, you know, paying attention to Mm -hmm. The strangeness of the world or the, you know, I don't feel like I'm doing anything super unique in that regard. I just think that I am aware that my brain wants to make sense of stuff. And I give it an opportunity to make sense of stuff, you know, or, or actively participate in the fact that it does that. I think all of our brains do that. All of our brains would much prefer to find some reason for something to be the way it is than for – to try and accept and understand ambiguity and randomness and and things like that. So we're we're designed to do that. And then sometimes – it hits you over the head because it is just too perfect and beautiful, like a hearse being stuck at a toll booth. Lassa. <laughs> Wait,
1: well, you're not done. We're not done. Keep going.
2: Well, the, the thing, you know, so there's another there's a verse and verse, or a verse and a chorus, verse and a chorus, and then um, by that time, I think I had already recorded it, and I had recorded the song without any lyrics. I didn't sing it. I just was just... And then I envisioned this, like, um, long outro guitar solo. So I I needed another verse, and um, I needed something that was going to set up a long guitar solo into a last chorus. And that was actually the hardest part because I wanted something that sort of tied... Those two pieces together a little bit, at least, ambiently somehow. So I came up, I came up with a bunch of things that I actually changed over time, and I can't remember all the different changes because I only know, I only remember what I ended up on. But, but it was. Um, uh, um, I'd like to
4: find out. Why she had to go My heart wants What a heart can't control So I hang in the air As the light gets cold And I hide in her shadows And welcome her home
2: And then it goes into the solo there. Mm. But to me, it was kind of like I had become the guy that was hiding from the cops, that got killed, that got murdered by cops, that ended up on the highway in a hearse, not having the change even the money to go through a toll. Mm -hmm. You know, comically dark, even in in, uh, my demise, still completely (laughs) just... Devoid of any luck whatsoever, <laughs> you know, which is a country trope in a way, you know, just like the the beautiful loser, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, but still singing. This is a th- a theme on the record actually, is still singing from beyond the grave to this woman who basically took a, took everything away in his opinion or his feeling but knowing basically saying i'm i'm still going to be in that air that you breathe i'm still going to be i can't have what i want but i can still imagine that you are going to think about me from time to time and it's an it's a sad pathetic notion that a lot of a lot of weak men have and i've had in my life and and is that um you'll miss me when i'm gone <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. and and uh uh i think it's more often than not wishful thinking
1: <laughs> yeah wait well, jeff you have to finish the song for us
2: oh well there's just one more chorus That's fine. No, no no it's fine it's
1: fine it's so beautiful oh thank
2: you
4: Make believe that you still love me. Oh, oh, believe. It's hard to see reality when you got no love at all. And
1: I love that. Hold on.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Jeff. I think that's a, a lovely way to... To wrap things up.
2: Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks to Jeff Tweedy for
0: breaking down his songwriting for us. You can hear all of our favorite Jeff Tweedy songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com/brokenrecordpodcast. There you can find extended cuts of our new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and is executive produced by Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like Broken Record, please remember to share, rate, and review our show on your podcast app. Our theme music by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace.